Welcome to episode 28 of Ask Paul Kirtley, where I'm going to work on my brevity. Welcome, welcome to episode 28, where you find me in the north of England. I've been out for a walk today, and if you follow me on Snapchat, you'll have seen my almost real-time tree and plant identification walk, my virtual tree and plant identification walk that I've been doing via Snapchat today. Some videos, some photos with the common names and the Latin names of interesting trees and plants that I've seen. And if you're watching this video, this Ask Paul Curly, on the day of release or early on the day after release, you will still be able to catch that on my Snapchat stories because that will be there for 20 24 hours. So most of it was recorded on the afternoon of April, Friday the 6th, and it will be there until around about the same time mid-afternoon on April 7th. So if you're watching this, as soon as it comes out on my blog or on YouTube, you'll be able to go over to my Snapchat, which I will link in the show notes. I'll put a link here as well. If you're not already connected with me on Snapchat, my username is just Paul Kirtley. Go there and you'll be able to see the interesting trees and plants that we saw today. So thanks for watching that, those of you that have joined me on that walk already. And if you haven't already done so, check it out because it's good. And I'll do another one at some point in the future in a different part of the country, different parts of the country, different times of year. I'll just do a random one and I will announce it a couple of days before and uh, then I will uh, go and do it normally in the afternoon UK time because then people who are in uh, North America can catch it as well because we're five or six hours ahead depending on where you are on the east certainly and eight hours um, over in the west so um, hopefully some of you guys can catch it as well that like to watch this show from uh, the United States or Canada all right Anyway, without further ado, we're going to get straight into the questions. I'm going to try and tackle quite a lot of questions today. Um, they're building up. There's a lot of good questions coming in. Um, I'm struggling to keep up with them, to be honest with you, even though I'm doing this show once a week now. Um, I'm still really struggling to keep up with the questions. Some of them are repeats of the previous ones. Of course, I'm not going to do those. But new questions, different questions, interesting questions, new angles, new uh, context are coming in all the time. And I'm going to try and get through as many of those as I possibly can. So first one, there are two questions here that are similar. And so I'm going to read them both out and I'm going to give a general answer. The first one is from Dylan and he asks about finding Flint. He says, hello, Paul, for a while I've been following your YouTube channel and seen your Ask Paul Kirtley videos. Very enjoyable. My question to you is, is there any good flint stones around and where can you find them? I'm living in Ireland and there's plenty of stone, but they're all, they all seem too brittle or soft. Thought since you're from England, same global location, that you might know more. Thanks for the great videos and looking forward to the next one. Cheers, Dylan. And then there was another similar question from Isa our good friend Isa, and he asks, Hi Paul, I want to try developing my skills further by not using my knife so much. I want to try my, uh, to make my bow drill set using flint. I've come across quite a few fallen conifers and searched around in the roots, but so far haven't found any flint. I live in Leeds, if that makes any difference. Maybe Yorkshire doesn't have much flint. If that's the case, which of the rocks can I make cutting edge tools from 
is Chert any good? Thank you. Well, Dylan, Isa, um, I think what your experience first shows is that flint is not as common as people would like it to be. Um, there is this romantic view, and I've, I've talked about this previously. I think I talked about it in the Bowdrill, uh, quite lengthy monologue about Bowdrill an episode or two ago. Um, it's not as available as you would like. There is a reason why flint from certain parts of the UK was traded right up and down the country. In the, um, in the Mesolithic in particular, um, flint from places like Grimes Graves on the Suffolk-Norfolk border near Thetford Forest, that was, that's been found right up and down the country. That was traded um, and it was carried with people. And the reason for that is because you can't just dig a hole in the ground, check a, a tree root randomly in some part of the country and find some flint. It's just not evenly distributed like that. You tend to find it in chalky um, parts of the country where there's chalk, so South Downs you may find some, um, East Anglia you may find some, but a lot of the best flint was not just kicking around on the surface. Even back in the Stone Age they had to mine for it and Grimes Graves, um, if you go there it's this pockmarked landscape where they dug shallow mines basically into the ground or, or narrow quarries, however you want to think about it, but they were digging down and then they were digging out these little mines and they were bringing out good quality flint nodules to, to, to make um, knives, spear points, um, arrowheads, all of these things that they used uh, flint for in the, uh, in the upper Paleolithic, in the Mesolithic certainly, and even into the Neolithic those things were being used. So it's even back then it was a sought after commodity people went to particular places to to extract it from the ground and it wasn't just something you could pick up and make tools with willy-nilly the other the other the other ingredients that you need the other materials that you need for making a bow drill set for example are much more widespread the thing that you've got to have with you is a cutting tool and that was the case even in the stone age you would want to get a really good quality piece of material and and have that with you and you see you see that in the archaeological record where people had items that they carried with them um, flint was often part of that tool set that people carried with them and even hunter-gatherers now that are quite low in terms of sophistication of the equipment that they have and that's not meant in a detrimental way that's just that in some places you don't need a lot of equipment to live you can have quite a flat um, technological base if you like compared to say I don't know the Inuit who need quite a deep level of technology in terms of being able to live in quite a harsh environment some parts um, in terms of the environment um, in terms of the tools that you need to extract food from the uh, from the plants and trees that are there as well as butchering the animals that are there you don't need a lot even so in those places a knife is still valuable so if you look at the Hadza for example um, in terms of the scale that anthropolo anthropologists um, put uh, hunter-gatherers on and native peoples on in terms of their um, indigenous technological uh, sophistication um, the Hadza are very simple in that sense they have a hand drill they have a knife they have a bow they have arrows and that's all that they need but they still value cutting tools so even at the uh, most uncomplicated uh, let's not say unsophisticated uncomplicated end of technological development a cutting tool is still a valuable thing that is carried with them they don't use stone tools anymore they they trade for uh, for steel knives but that's something that they carry with them. So I would say that just get rid of this romantic idea that you can just find a tree root or you can dig in the ground wherever you find and then get some flint out. And even if you did, you then have to know about flint napping. 
um, to be able to make something useful out of it. So there's a lot of skill there as well, um, once you have the material, to make something that isn't just a randomly broken piece of rock. So um, that, that's what I would say. Yes, there are places you can fly in flint. Yes, um, chalky places. Just go and Google flint and see how it forms, see where it forms, because even, even how it forms is somewhat debated, but see where it forms, the type of places you find it, the, where the quality flint is actually found, that will give you some indication as to the realism of what it is that you're trying to achieve. Right, next question. On wind and shelter from Peter Magnan, or Magnin, um, Hi Paul, thank you so much for what you do for the community of bushcraft and nature lovers. Well, you're very welcome, Peter. Um, my question are your ways of accurately determining wind direction for setting up a shelter and a fire. In my case, I will do a basic lean-to with a raised bed and a long fire running the length of the shelter. And I have trouble uh, that winds seem to change and I get smoke in the shelter where it's almost unbearable. I take my best educated guess with the wind when I start setting up, but it seems like it is, can be hit or miss during the night. Do you spend a certain amount of time on the wind or have any other tips? Thanks again. Love the show. Peter from Nebraska in the US. Well, thank you, Peter. And so I'm assuming you're talking about in the winter, but it doesn't really matter that much. I mean, the issue with winds, are they, the way that they work can be quite localized. Um, it can be worth knowing what the prevailing wind direction is in the area where you're operating. Um, and typically that's where you should be expecting the wind to come from. Even if there isn't much wind when you set up, if statistically, if there is a wind comes up during the night, then it's probably more likely going to be from the prevailing direction. Now, bear in mind as well that the prevailing wind direction can be, in some places it can be different in the winter to the summer, so that's something that's worth bearing in mind. And also, depending on the terrain of where you are, you've got to take into consideration, particularly in the winter, you can get air flows due to uh, cold, dense air dropping and warm air going to replace that. So but you'll typically get cold air going downhill. And if the hill is steep enough, that can bring up a wind in the night, uh, a catabatic wind, if you like. Um, although it doesn't have to be particularly powerful like it gets in places like uh, Greenland, um, where you get really powerfully cat powerful catabatic winds and other um, areas like that where you get very, very strong catabatic winds. But um, even on a relatively light um, slope in the woods in the winter, as the temperature drops at night and cold air drops into the low points in the woods, you can get a bit of a wind coming through the woods. And um, that can be enough to bring smoke into your shelter, particularly if you've started off with a a pretty decent blaze and you've been warm and cozy, you've gone to sleep, it's died down a bit, it's started to smolder and in that time the wind has come up a bit as well, that can be enough to start bringing um, smoke into your shelter. Um, I know there's a couple of other questions about fires overnight and I'm going to come back to this but I think one of the things is that um, we have to change our expectations with fire management overnight as well in that yes you can if you if you really work at it and you get some really big logs light a fire that will burn steadily all night and keep you warm all night but often we're going to need to manage a fire overnight as well minimize the amount of smoke maximize the amount of flame and get a good radiant heat off it that's one thing that we may just have to change you know this expectation that we're going to go to bed sleep wake up 
maybe you would just have to manage the fire a little bit to minimize the smoke, that's one thing. Um, but in terms of the wind, one thing that people often get wrong um, with a lean-to type shelter, whether it's a freestanding open-fronted shelter, a debris shelter, or whether it's a classic northern forest lean-to where you've got a couple of uprights and a crossbeam and um, pieces against it with a, with a raised bed is the sort of thing that you're describing. Um, the thing that, that people make a mistake with there is they think they should put the back of the shelter to any breeze or any slight wind because that's going to give them a windbreak. What happens though is a little bit like I'm sat by a river here um, it's actually the river that we canoed down the other day so um, I'll put a link here to the, uh, the video of Amanda and I paddling down this river. There isn't very much water in it but even now where there's a rock um, you'll get water flowing round that rock and behind it there will be a recirculation of water and that can be big or that can be small depending on the size of the rock and the flow of the water but that is called an eddy and you will also get eddies with the smoke um, from your fire with the airflow so basically if you put the back of the shelter to the wind the wind will come up and over your shelter and eddy back behind the shelter i.e into the shelter and if that's bringing in smoke from the fire then you're going to get a face full of smoke so what you really want is that it, for it to be side on to the wind so that even a slight breeze is blowing across the fire that's going to help keep it um, blowing uh, blowing underneath the fire a little bit like you're blowing on it to, to get the flames going that's going to keep oxygen going into it it's going to take the smoke away from your shelter and from you and that's the best place for it to be so whenever I set up a lean-to, I try and think about what if I was setting up two lean-tos? What if I was there with a friend and we were setting up a lean-to opposite each other with a fire in the middle so that we could both benefit from it? How would we set it up then? Um, neither of us are going to want to have our face to the wind or our back to the wind, but we're both going to want to be side on to the wind or the breeze or the slight breeze, whatever it is. It doesn't have to be much to, to make your life a, a bit of a smoky misery, as you know. You want to be side on. So even when you're on your own, do the same thing and that should minimize the amount of smoke coming into your shelter. So think about the prevailing wind for the time of year. Think about um, localized breezes due to cold air, particularly in the winter going downhill. Think about putting your shelter side on to the breeze, the expected breeze or the current breeze rather than with the back to it. And that, all of those things should help minimize the number of times where you have problems with with smoke coming into the shelter so hopefully that helps peter good practical questions uh, i like that peter very good right let me just get back to the questions all right this is a question from daniel campbell and it's about becoming an instructor Hi Paul, big fan of your videos, slowly working my way through them all as I have only recently found you. Well, welcome Daniel, I hope you've been enjoying the vids. Um, I'm a scout leader and as such try and teach as much bushcraft as I can. How do you make the step into making it a full-time career like yourself? There are many outdoor centres but not many that specialise in bushcraft. Are there any courses, qualifications to get onto that first run, rung of the ladder? Well, Daniel, I don't know where you're based, for starters. You've got a hotmail.com address, so that doesn't help me in terms of your location either, whether you're in the UK or the US or, or elsewhere. Um, 
You say you're a scout leader. I, I'm going to guess that you're in the UK, but that's an assumption just based on the, your, the way that you're using English and the way the phraseology. So forgive me if you're not, Daniel. Um, I have answered a few similar questions, not exactly the same question, but a few similar questions in previous episodes. So hopefully you've come across those answers now as you've worked through all the Aspal Kirtleys. And if not, um, it was the end of last summer when I had a few questions. It was around August, September time that I had a number of questions about being an instructor and instructor qualifications and what you needed to set up a bushcraft school. I had a sort of raft of those questions which I answered then. So go back to that period and find those if you haven't done already. Um, I'll be honest with you, I'll be frank with you, um, it's not easy uh, being a full-time bushcraft instructor. It's not easy being a full-time anything outdoors instructor. Um, the work is generally really quite seasonal. Lots more people want to come out and do things in the summer months, and by summer months I mean the spring, the summer and the early autumn. People are much less keen to come out and do things in the winter. And frankly, I'm also less keen to do certain things in the winter as a provider of instruction because the days are very short and um, so I can't get as much in in a day in January or February in the UK as I can in a day in June or July because the days are a lot shorter. Second in terms of all the trees and plants, now it's early May, we've had quite a warm week this week um, if you look behind me, you can probably see, I think, that everything's greening up a lot. Everything's shooting up. There's loads and loads of trees and plants um, to be able to teach people about now from sort of late April through till September, October. There's loads and loads of things to show people all the time. Um, but a lot of deciduous trees um, are only just coming into leaf now and they lose their leaves later in the year. Um, this is the best time of year to be teaching people about those things. It's the best time of year to be teaching about all of the understory plants because they're present. They die right back in the winter. They're just not there to show people. So that then also means that we have to look for other things in the winter rather than just teaching the same stuff year round. That makes life a little bit more difficult in some respects. Um, also, um, you say there aren't many outdoor centres that specialise in bushcraft. There aren't any outdoor centres that specialise in bushcraft in the UK. All the top bushcraft providers in the UK are companies that um, will basically set up expedition style camps and run courses in the woods. There are no fixed centres that specialise in bushcraft and actually I, I don't think there should be because bricks and mortar are not the answer. You need to be out in the woods, immersed in the woods, whether it's for a night, you know, for a weekend and a night or whether it's for longer, that's the best way to go out and learn and be practically applying the skills, lighting fires, cooking on the fire, living in the tarps, all of those sorts of things or building shelters. You know, even at a basic level you want to be out in the woods um, applying the skills. So don't look to centres. Centres are um, often trying to tack on bushcraft onto whatever they're already doing, you know, canoeing and uh, navigation and orienteering and raft building and all those other things. Centres want to add those things on for kids in particular. And I think that's fine because you want to give them a range of different experiences. You know, I went to outdoor centres when I lived in North Wales in particular when I was, um, I moved there when I was five, I moved away when I was 10. And I had a great time in North Wales, both in terms of doing stuff with my parents, doing stuff on my own, running around in the woods, as well as um, going to some really good outdoor centres in Wales, um, particularly ones that were aimed at kids specifically. 
and we did a different activities you know we went cycling we went walking we went swimming we did um kayaking on the lake we did eskimo rolls or, or at least capsizes in the swimming pool in the in the canoes we did all sorts of stuff it was great um and you don't want to be doing lots and lots of all of those things you just want to be doing tasters all of those things and i still remember that you know that was you know 35 years ago and i still remember all of those activities that we did it was a great uh, time i remember going to a, an outdoor center for a week and putting bushcraft in amongst that is great um, so if you know if you want to go down the center route and offer bushcraft at a center that's fine but you're probably going to have to be able to be multi-skilled and be able to do other things as well you know get canoeing tickets get um you know other t other ngb awards that you need to be able to be doing various different activities um, unless it's a huge center where you could just be doing different groups all the time but there's virtually none of those so i would say the best thing for you to do, um, unless you go and work for a dedicated bushcraft company, and we'll come on to that, is to look at getting a, a variety of different um, areas of outdoor instructor uh, qualifications and experience in all of those areas. And that comes brings me back to bushcraft as well. Um, I get a little bit frustrated with young people coming to me saying, I've just got into bushcraft, I want to be an instructor. It's like, well, what are you gonna teach people? Um, and and this, sounds, this sounds like I'm putting you down, but it's a little bit like 21 year olds wanting to be life coaches or, you know, or business coaches. You've got no experience. Um, you've got no life experience that you're gonna teach a 45, 50 year old businessman about. Um, and it's the same with bushcraft skills. Go and get some experience. Go and practice the skills. I think one of the problems today with bushcraft is there is so much low level um, and again, people, people will criticize me for this, okay? People, people will say that I'm arrogant, that I'm a snob, that I'm elitist, that I want to keep the jobs for the boys. I don't. I'm frustrated at the lack of skill across the board that I see posted on Instagram, posted on, um, on, uh, on uh, channels on YouTube, posted all over the net on, on Facebook groups. People are doing things badly. Um, people are teaching themselves things and that's great, but that doesn't put you in a position where you can then teach other people because it's just the blind leading the blind. What you want to do is build up, you know, 10, you know, 15, 20 years of outdoor experience if you're gonna be teaching yourself and trying these things and trying a, a, an error. Um, otherwise, go and apprentice with other people who've been teaching for a long time so they can get you up the curve quicker. That's the other option. So go to one of the established bushcraft schools and apply, um, write to them and say, are there any jobs? Um, and before I get a slew of, of applications, there are no jobs going up Frontier Bushcraft at the moment. Um, I've talked about how difficult it is to keep a, a bushcraft school going in the past. We're not going to go there, but um, I'm not in a position to be able to take people on. I think you have to adjust your expectations. You are not going to get a full-time job being a bushcraft instructor, particularly if you don't really have any experience. You can probably get um, some work volunteering for free. You might be able to get some paid work doing part-time work, weekends, holidays, those sorts of things, and build up your experience that way. Because you don't only need experience with um, the skills, you need experience with teaching as well. And that's a whole different area. But you can get that not just from bushcraft, you can get that from 
going and helping out on a local climbing wall, going out, you're a scout leader already, so you have some of those skills already from teaching and passing on. You can cross fertilize, um, but you're really probably gonna need to go and do a number of different things and get an income from different areas or um, Otherwise, it's going to be a struggle. If you set your heart on being a full-time bushcraft instructor, um, you're probably going to fail. And I don't mean that like I didn't fail. It's a struggle for me sometimes to make ends meet. And I know it's a struggle for other people that do this full-time to make ends meet, not least because there are a lot of amateurs who don't charge enough in, the, in, in this industry. They've got a full-time job doing something else. They teach a bushcraft course at the weekend. They, it's pocket money for them. And that puts a low bar in terms of the pricing at the bottom end of the market. So if you then want to be a full-time professional, there's a real pricing pressure in terms of the short courses, the one day, the two day, the three day courses. That makes it difficult to make any money out of that end of the market, unfortunately. So um, then you're looking to longer courses to actually make a living from, but the number of people that can offer longer courses and have got the authority to be able to, you know, and the ability and the depth of knowledge to teach a week-long course or a week-long intermediate or a week-long advanced course in bushcraft are few and far between. So that's where you're going to have to get to to make a living from it and even then you've got to pay for a website all year, you've got to pay for insurance, you've got to run a vehicle, all those sorts of things. So be realistic but if you've got strings to your bow, if you can uh, if you've got a single pitch award, if you've got an ML, if you've got your, um, some of your canoeing or kayaking tickets, then you're more employable by a center. You can get work at different types of work at different times of the year, and you can put bushcraft into the mix, particularly if you're still building your bushcraft skills up, because then you're less reliant upon just going you know, all in on the, on the bushcraft. And then over time, you can build up your bushcraft skills as you're building up your other skills as well. That's, that would be the realistic advice that I would give a young person right now. Um, be an apprentice with an established school by all means, but that's not likely to be full time. Um, and try and get some of your other NGB awards as well, because people will be looking for those things. And it also shows that you've got breadth as well as depth in your, in your abilities as an instructor. It will make you a better instructor um, if you have NGB awards in other things um, that you can cross fertilize different approaches and different experiences, frankly. So that, that would be my advice um, at the moment. And I said I was going to be brief, but I, I could, what I might do is do a full podcast on this because I keep giving bits of advice and I keep getting very similar questions back. Um, and it's possible I might just do one of my podcasts, one of the actual Paul Kirtley podcasts on careers and working in bushcraft and make a very structured podcast about um, giving people advice, giving people different options and, and putting some realism into it as well. Um, this is not uh, an uh, this is not an, uh, an area of teaching which is easy to make a living from at all. All right, next question is about Millbank bags, and this is from William uh, Payne, and his question is: Hi Paul, what's your opinion of the use of Millbank bags as part of bushcraft kit for water filtering? Do you feel one has value, or is it just a niche item for bushcraft? Thank you, Bill. Um, well, Bill, uh, the first thing I would say is there's no such thing as bushcraft kit. There is um, bushcraft and there is kit, and the two things are separate. Some pieces of equipment make some parts of bushcraft easier. Um, they make, you know, for a classic example would be a knife. A knife makes a lot of bushcraft sk skills 
easier. Um, we've talked about what happens if you're looking for stone tools already. Um, so some sort of cutting tool makes a lot of bushcraft much easier. Um, but I don't think a knife is bushcraft kit. I think there are some knives which are better suited to bushcraft than others. Um, but other than that, there is no such thing as bushcraft kit. And I think there is too much emphasis on kit. Um, but is a Millbank bag something that can just be used in the context of bushcraft? Absolutely not. It was developed for the military. It's developed, it was developed to remove suspended matter from water and it does that job very, very well. Um, the originals do that job very, very well. The original fabric is no longer available. Um, they're not issued to the military anymore and they hadn't been for some time. The, the uh, rot-proof fabric is no longer available, but you can still get uh, Millbank style bags made of canvas and they work very, very well. All they're really aiming to do is if you've got sandy, cloudy water, water with um, suspended organic matter in it, it's just reducing that to make it look visibly clear. It may still have some taint to it in terms of flavour, it may still have some coloration, particularly in this area. This is very peaty, the water here, where I run courses down in the south of England. Um, there are iron ore deposits in the, in the ground there as well, and sometimes you get a spring coming up through that and you'll get a brown coloration to the water, even after you've filtered it, because of the iron oxide in the, in the water, even after you've done a coarse filtration through a millbank bag. But what you're aiming to do with the Millbank bag is remove that suspended matter that will uh, potentially upset your stomach in and of its own right, but also a lot of the pathogenic organisms are going to be attached to dirt. And if you can remove dirt, then you're removing a lot of the pathogenic organisms. If you're using chlorine, chlorine works much better on clear water than it does on cloudy water. Don't use chlorine in cloudy water. Um, and if you're boiling, again, that will kill all the um, that will kill all the pathogenic organisms, but the stuff that's left in there, if you've got silt or dirt or other things in there, even if they're devoid of pathogenic organisms, that's still gonna upset the lining of your stomach potentially, give you, give you the runs uh, particularly, and you wanna be removing it. So I don't think it's anything really to do with bushcraft. I think it's a useful thing to have for when you're trying to deal with uh, turbid water, particularly if you're gonna boil. Um, it's less important if you're using a pump filter because they do, that, they, they do the microfiltration to get rid of a lot of the pathogens, but they're also gonna do that coarse filtration probably on the inlet tube um, before it goes into the filter. So really where a millbank comes into its own is if you're boiling or if you're using chemicals, um, particularly if you're gonna use chlorine, but even if you're using iodine, um, or chlorine dioxide, getting rid of that suspended matter is important. So um, yeah, I think it should be something that most people have in their kit if they're regularly um, extracting water from natural sources, because at some point you're gonna find some really muddy water, you're gonna need to use it. Um, you might even need to dig a gypsy well and extract water that's quite muddy. And if you can then filter it through a Millbank bag or a Millbank style bag, then that's gonna set you on your way to getting your uh, clean drinking water. So yeah, definitely think they're very worthwhile and I still teach people to use them on my courses. Good question. All right, there's two similar questions here. One is about, they're both about overnight fires and we touched on that with a lean-to question early on. Um, so this one is, is a multi-part question from Jack. Um, I'm only going to really answer the primary part of it. So 
first question, so he says, this is kind of a two-in-one uh, related and one general question about yourself. Firstly, I remember you saying that you have done overnight stays with wool blankets before. Myself and a friend did an overnight in mid-March where we slept totally out in the open with a long log fire using beds of leaf litter that were about six inches thick and wool blankets. The experience was very interesting and we both felt we learned a lot. <laughs> okay, this is the question. Could you please share your advice on wool blanket sleeping and more importantly, sustaining a fire throughout the night as we both felt it was the most challenging part of the night? Right, I've already answered questions, multiple questions on wool blankets um, in the last quarter of last year, certainly end of the summer into the autumn. I had quite a few questions about wool blankets. Go back there. Um, I've answered uh, questions about wool blankets. Unless you've got something more specific, I think I've already answered the general questions about how to sleep out with wool blankets. But in terms of keeping the fire going through the night, we'll come on to that in a second. Um, the second part of your question, um, I'll, I'll answer this briefly. Um, he, Jack asks, secondly, you seem very educated. Did you go to uni? And if so, what did you study? Were your hobbies outdoors related whilst at uni? if you did go. Um, Jack, I, I think again, I've talked about this in, in other places, but um, yes, I went to uni. I studied mathematics at Edinburgh University. My hobbies were outdoors. Um, I was very much into cycling, mountain bike racing back then, did a lot of cycle racing and just cycle riding in general primarily mountain biking off it was cross country and um, not not so much downhill downhill and cross country were just sort of separating at that point particularly as full suspension bikes came in my first mountain bike was a hard it was hardtail hard no suspension forks then i bought suspension forks to go on it just as suspension forks came in and that was for cross country and even for downhill then i remember doing downhill time trials and things as well um, but then there was a separate discipline really as the bikes became more specialized and my the thing that i really liked was the endurance the um the cross country cycling and that's what i did a lot in the northeast of england i used to ride down into the dales ride up into the north pennines um, brilliant area just for cycling around and going across the old mining tracks and the old sheep tracks and all of these things over the tops of the moors and in the forests in the northeast so that was one of the things i used to do and when i went to edinburgh um, i carried that on i cycled into the pentland hills um, a lot and i used to be back in the northeast in the holidays long university holidays i did a lot of cycling back in those days so yes i was also hiking did a lot of um, backpacking. It's quite cheap to do. As a student, I didn't have a lot of money. Um, I had some basic outdoor gear, a backpack, a, a cheap tent. And again, I've talked about these things a bit in the past, so I won't go into details, but basically I liked backpacking. And as, and as I was at university in Edinburgh, um, I really started to discover the highlands when I was up there. Um, I was already doing hiking in the Lake District. As I said in a previous question, I spent some of my childhood in North Wales as well. And so I've always walked, I've always hiked, and then I kind of graduated from day hikes into multi-day hikes, particularly during that period when I was at university. So yes, my, my hobbies were outdoors. Um, I liked doing those sorts of things a lot and they were relatively inexpensive. Um, once you've got a mountain bike, once you've got a backpack and a tent and some walking boots, um, you can kind of go and do the things as much as you want and it costs you a train ride uh, somewhere maybe but other than that um, on a student rail card um, it wasn't that expensive so that's what I was doing um, also studied some philosophy at university and generally I just I've read a lot and um, I've done a lot I've traveled a lot um, and that all comes into uh, 
my life background in terms of answering. Um, you know, you graduate, I graduated back in 1995, um, this is 2016, so I graduated 21 years ago. Um, I've got more life experience since I left university than I had in the whole time up until I graduated pretty much. So don't, don't discount um, life experience either. Um, university's good and it sets you up well in lots of ways, but life is also good <laughs> in terms of you've got to take lessons from it and be your own teacher in that sense. Um, so I will come back to the fires question, which is a central part of what I haven't answered. Go back to previous things about wool blankets. So this is another similar question from Chris Douglas, and I'll answer this in conjunction with Jack's question. So his question is about firewood burn times. And his, he says, hi Paul, I'm new to bushcraft and outdoors. One of my priorities is to learn good fire building skills. Can you advise on the best types of woods to use as in which burn the longest? I'm particularly interested in which burn the longest so as to be able to ensure the fire burns for as long as possible once I settle down to sleep. Many thanks, Chris. Well, as I said, in answer to Peter's question about the lean-tos, um, in answer to Jack and Chris, I think in some ways you have to manage your expectations. Um, it's unlikely that you're gonna be able to set a fire, light it, lie down, go to sleep for six hours, seven hours, eight hours. It's just not going to happen. And um, particularly if you're not sleeping with modern sleeping equipment where you're closing um, air in, you know, if you sleep outside with the, with the uh, a sleeping bag that's right for the conditions, that's right for the time of year, and a bivy bag and a decent sleeping mat, you don't need a fire. So whatever your fire is doing, um, unless it's completely asphyxiating you with smoke, whatever your fire is doing, it doesn't really matter. Um, where it matters more is if you're in a lean-to and it, you're just on a raised bed. If you're on a um, on an improvised mattress and you're next to a fire with a wool blanket and the wool blanket isn't doing as, uh, as much as you might like to keep you warm. As I've said in previous questions, two wool blankets work very, very well, both in terms of keeping the heat in and keeping moisture out. I've slept out in, under trees in the rain with two, two wool blankets, the outer one gets wet, the inner one's pretty dry and I've stayed cozy. Um, but in terms of the fire, you're gonna have to manage it more. Unless you take very big logs, which in a lot of places is quite difficult to do because you're gonna have to be felling dead standing timber and either that's just not there, um, you know, some types of, some species of trees are more prone to staying upright in a large uh, condition um, than others. And in the Northern forest, you've got dead standing pine trees. They're very, very good for uh, long log fires and I don't think it's necessarily a coincidence that the, the where you really need those long log fires and where they developed was also in places where you can get basically telegraph pole sized pine trees dead standing you can chop them down section them into seven foot long uh, eight foot long poles and have three of those stacks to create a, a three log long log fire or have and that's somewhat smoky, it burns faster and can be a bit smoky at the back end of burning it. Um, if you can make a two log long log fire, 
like I talked about in one of my podcasts, I think it was podcast six, not the Ask Paul Kirtley podcast, but the podcast um, where I was in Sweden and I also um, talked with the, the Sami reindeer herder, if you remember that one, if you've listened to it. I also talked about a two log, long log fire where I was lie, laying down in front of it and you get a very steady burn off those and it's a comfortable fire to, and it's less smoky. So you, that is the ideal fire to have to sleep next to. If you're burning smaller material, even if it's sort of thigh thickness um, or forearm thickness or bicep thickness, um, even if you're Arnold Schwarzenegger, those, bi uh, you know, those, those bicep thickness logs are not going to be as big as what you might want to burn on a proper long log fire in the northern forest. They're going to burn through quicker. The, the surface area to volume ratio is different, so you get more oxygen to the fuel, it burns through quicker. Also in the northern forest, the wood is denser, it's got um, a slower, uh, they're slower growing, shorter growing seasons, the rings are um, closer together, so even something like pine is quite dense and um, it's going to burn for longer. So if you're translating a northern forest style of fire to somewhere where trees are faster growing, you maybe can't find species that are dead standing in the size that you might get further north um, with different species, then you're going to end up with a somewhat, something of a compromise. You're going to have to manage the fire more because um, it's going to burn down quick, more quickly. The important thing is that you typically need more fire than you th more firewood than you think you do for a fire going through the night. And um, burning a fire for you know if you get it going before before you go to bed, you get warm, you get into bed. That's probably you know three quarters of an hour at least before you go to bed, and then you want it to be going for eight hours and still have some to throw on in the morning. You need ten hours worth of firewood and to the inexperienced 10 hours worth of firewood doesn't see you don't think that's much it's a lot of firewood so if, if you're going to be burning uh, smaller than telegraph size telegraph pole size so smaller than something that's 12 or 14 inches across maybe even 16 inches across smaller than that if it's only going to be six to eight inches across maximum you're going to need more stuff you're going to need to manage it more because it's not going to stay in the same shape it's going to die down it's going to smolder it's going to smoke you're going to need to put more on particularly if you're relying on it to, to stay warm you know when i've slept in shelters with nothing but a fire to keep me warm and a bed then you wake up every hour, every 90 minutes, and you have to put more fuel on it um, when you don't have massive fuel. And you can't have massive fuel in shelters. And even outside with a lean-to, unless you've got those big telegraph poles, you're gonna have to be putting stuff on. You're just gonna have to change your expectations. You will have to wake up, you'll have to put fire firewood on. So plan for that, have a stack of firewood where you can reach it from your bed and put it on the fire. That's a really important thing to be able to do and that will help you. In terms of the best firewoods in the UK, I think Chris Douglas is in the UK as well, but I'm not, I can't remember Chris, apologies. Um, I know Jack's in the UK. Um, wood that will burn the best through the night, oak, beech, um, bigger pieces of willow that aren't too rotten will burn quite nicely. Um, hornbeam, if you can get hold of it, but there isn't so much around. Um, those caloric, uh, calorific firewoods that will burn steadily are what you need, um, but you're still going to need to manage the fire during the night. That's just the reality of the situation, but hopefully that helps. The other thing for you, Jack, is make a better bed because you lose a lot of heat into the ground. That will make your wool blanket experience much better. All right, a few quick fire questions here to finish off. Just trying to get through these quickly. From Barry McLean, 
and his message was entitled Meaningful Stuff. And I thought this was going to be a philosophical question at first, but it's a little bit more practical. Um, Paul, I have an old Berghaus fleece, nothing fancy. Um, my, my wife bought it 20 years ago. It's simple, simple and comfy and good. I have leather gloves issued before I went to Kosovo. Have you got kit that just means a lot to you? So yeah, there, there are some pieces of equipment that have been through a lot with me. Oyster catcher going over there. That's nice. That's nice. Um, hopefully that got picked up on the microphone. Yeah, uh, something that broke very recently, um, my Laplander saw, my first Laplander saw, I mean, it's had replacement blades, but I brought it, I bought it in 2002, 2001, 2002, in that era when I was doing a lot of courses, um, bushcraft courses myself, learning a lot of bushcraft skills from Juha Rankinen and, and Ray Mears and Lars Falt, and um, before I started assisting those guys on courses. Um, I bought a Laplander, it's had multiple replacement blades since then, but the, pr the press button on it that locks it open and locks it closed, just two weeks ago, I was working on the Woodcrafter course. I went to open it just to saw a branch. I pressed it and it just broke off at the base. Um, and to give you some indication of how old that saw is, it said Sandvik on that part. These days it says Barco, um, but it was an old enough one that it said Sandvik. And so even though I can get another one, um, I, I felt there was a there was a tinge of sadness there, and I'm not being I'm not being sarcastic. There really was because that's been all over the world with me. Uh, it's been it's been to the north of Scandinavia. It's been to Australia. It's been to Africa. It's been to Canada multiple times. Uh, it's literally been all over with me in the last 15 years, and so for that to break. Um, that's quite sad um, because it because it served me really really well everywhere I've been and it the, the, the new ones that you get now are quite rough and sticky and um, and I'm sure mine was to start off with but it was so I'd used it so much it was smooth it had a sort of polish to it a patina on it on the handle um, it had little marks from different trips it had my initials scratched in you know it's just that that was you know it's a core piece of kit as well something that I pretty much always had with me on wilderness trips um, along with a knife and a few other things like a metal mug and you know that's those seven core items you know the, those uh, those things I've talked about on my on my blog you know it's in that core set of equipment um, so that was sad also my Hestra gloves um, that I use in the north northern forest um, leather gloves with wool liners removable they just become you know like an old pair of slippers and again a couple of years ago one of the, the right I'm right-handed the, the right-handed one literally it's just the fingers are worn through the leather's so thin and again I'd had those for a number of years lots of trips in the northern forest lots of trips uh, uh, ski touring as well in, in cold conditions um, but then I got a new set and it was just it was just like wearing alien gloves it was you know it wasn't even like wearing somebody else's gloves they were just like these things on my hands and so those old gloves that were like slippers um I, I miss those the new ones are starting to wear in now um, I've had a leather belt for many years which I pretty much wear all the time whether it's on my jeans when I'm around town or in the woods or on trips you know those there's a few things like that that I've had for a long time um I've got a, it's like a Swiss Army knife, a Mauser officer's knife. I don't think you can get them anymore. 
unless you get them secondhand. But that's something I had, I got when I was about 12, 13 years old. And when I was really getting interested in survival skills, I bought it from Penrith Survival in Moorland in Cumbria. So that was 30 years ago that I got that knife and I've still got it. Um, and there are a few things like that that really mean something to me that I've just used and used and used and used, taken to many places with me. And I think that's the key thing. It's the places they've been with you rather than almost the things themselves. It's that they've been your companions and they've looked after you and you've looked after them. So yeah, I do have a few things like that. So, and it's worth looking after stuff. I think there's, particularly today, there's a real trend towards just getting the next best thing, the next best thing. So there's this kind of, uh, sort of dichotomy there's this tug between a lot of people saying oh I'm getting into bushcraft and I'm interested in bushcraft and outdoor skills to get closer to nature and just get away from modern life for a bit and that that's fine but equally um, there's still a the, 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 the people feel like they need to get the next piece of shiny kit they need to get the expensive handmade knife and they need to get a new rucksack and they need to get the lighter this or the tougher this or the newer improved more breathable version of this and Yes, they might be marginally better, but the old thing that you're familiar with, that you're comfortable with, that works and you know it inside out, keep hold of them and use them because that, that then just frees you from worrying about the stuff that you've got around you and you concentrate on, on being uh, in the environment that you're in and making the journey you're making or having the camp that you're, that you're doing or whatever it is. Um, Try, try and diminish the kind of obsession with kit really and I think having those really important things that have served you well um, is a good place to start with that. Just nurture the stuff that works and keep it. Don't just keep looking for the next best thing. All right, that wasn't so much of a quick answer but it was, uh, it's important to talk about these things. This is from Snoz. And he asks, hi Paul, I know that you use an MSR dromedary, indeed I do. I have one also that I love, with one downside, the plastic taste of the water. I have tried bicarbonate of soda and Milton tablets in it, but they don't seem to shift the unpleasant taste. Does yours suffer from this or do I just, did I just get a bad dromedary bag? Love the shows, listen to the podcasts in the car on the way to work. Cheers, Snoz. Well, Snoz, um, I remember I've got several dromedary bags. I've got a smaller one that I use personally and which you will have seen in, one, in some of my uh, kit articles, certainly in the packing video, um, it's in there somewhere. Uh, and I do, and they're great for having around camp because you can store water while you're in camp and they pack down to very little and when you're on the move. I've also got some larger ones for group kits when we're doing journeys and again similar idea you've got them there for a water reservoir while you're in camp whether you're producing that from from boiling or whether you're producing it from filtering. We've got a nice MSR gravity filter that we use on canoe trips as well in camp and that fits directly onto the dromedaries and you put water in the top bag it, it filters through and goes into the dromedary bag really nice thing to, to, to have as well. Um, I don't have a lot of problem with, it, with them tasting a plastic. I remember them tasting a plastic a bit when they're new, but mine have been used so much they don't taste a plastic. Um, I give mine a clean out with chlorine tablets from time to time. I don't use Milton because again, I find that can leave a nasty taste. Um, I don't like the taste of milk, even if you wash it out a lot, it does leave a bit of a nasty taste. Although I know it's very good for, for, for disinfecting stuff um, and sterilizing. I don't personally, I don't like the, the, the taste that that can leave. Um, 
So I, I can only suggest that maybe you, you try putting some hot water in and flushing it out, hot water in, flushing it out. That might remove some of the plastic taste if it remains. But I found that once they're not new anymore, they, mine personally don't taste the plastic anymore. Occasionally, um, if I've left water in them for a long while and maybe the bag's been sat in the sun, it might take on a little bit of a taste, but even then, not a lot. So um, I think maybe, I don't know how much you've used them. It sounds like you've used them a fair amount, but maybe try another one or um, maybe just use it more. I, I, can't, I can't really suggest anything else. Um, it's not really a problem I've had. All right, next one. This is from Anthony. And he says, hi, Paul, a couple or dozen questions after watching and reading far too many of your posts in far uh, too short a time. OK, fair enough. I'm, I'm no doubt going to go back uh, uh, over a few at some point. Fair enough. OK, well, I'll, more questions in the future. That's fine. Um, and please just go back over the previous uh, Ask Paul Kirtley's. So his question, Anthony's question is, um, the first is about rucksacks. You mentioned PLCE side pockets a few times. For those of us who've never heard of these, what are they? Why are they good? And what do you look for in buying them? What else do you look for in a rucksack? Um, well, I've talked about kit. I think it was just even in the last one, I talked about kit selection being almost like an engineering problem. It's like a tire choice on a car. It depends what you're trying to do. Um, but as a general purpose rucksack, as I've said before, I like the Caramore SF Sabre 45. It makes a good big day pack, particularly for winter use. Um, it's quite tough. It's not that heavy. Um, forms a good basis for doing overnighters and longer trips in the, in the northern temperate forests in spring, summer and autumn. And it will take PLCE side pockets. And PLCE just means personal load carrying equipment. It's a military abbreviation for a standardized zip system which allows any side pocket that is PLCE to go onto any rucksack that is a PLCE rucksack. So um, Sabre 45 is a PLCE uh, fitted rucksack. It's got a certain size zip so any PLCE um, pocket will go on there. You can buy uh, Caramore PLCE pockets. Arctis used to make them, which I quite liked. Snug Pack make them. Lots of other people make them. Also, you can get specialist pockets like Medic pouches that are PLCE, which will zip on. So, for example, on our courses, we have a, a, a PLCE side pocket as our main first aid kit for the courses. That sits in our base camp um, until we go out um, and maybe go out to a bivy camp on the elementary course for example one of us one of the instructors will take that onto the side of one of our sabre 45s and we can take the first aid kit with us so that's one of the reasons i like them you can put different pockets on them you can wear the pockets out and replace them you can decide you don't want pockets on and just take them off just unzip them they come off very quickly um, the other thing with PL, those plce side pockets are they'll zip together so you can zip two pockets together and you can get a specialist this little they call it a yoke which is a fancy word for some straps which you can attach to the pockets and use that as a day pack as well so that's quite a nice function as well if you want to you know make a day pack and walk out with just a few things in using those side pockets as a two compartment day pack so that, those, are, those are some of the reasons why I like it. Do I always use it for all trips? No. Um, 
Do I always have side pockets on a rucksack? No, in some circumstances they can get in the way. Um, you might want a taller, thinner rucksack, but then we're looking at more specialist applications. So for hiking into the woods, overnighters, you know, up to a week with food and the equipment you need for spring, summer and autumn, northern temperate, I like the Sabre 45 rucksack with some sort of PLCE side pockets, um, either the Carrymore ones or some others. I used to like the Arctis ones, but they don't make those anymore, unfortunately. And um, the reason I liked them was because they had a clip rather than a zip at the top. Um, but yeah, they, it's, just a, it's just a good way of organizing your kit, as you've seen from some of my, some of my uh, other articles and videos and I will link to them on the YouTube I will link to those here and if you're on my blog look in the show notes underneath you will see those listed out in terms of links and additional information in terms of what I like to pack and how I like to pack it in that style of rucksack so that hopefully that's helpful to you Anthony and to anyone else who's interested in the same thing last question been an epic marathon one tonight this is from my good online friend dave wellsby via instagram and i'm getting caught up on the instagram questions now there's more coming and he asks there should be a picture of some matches now on the screen if i do the editing right um, he asks, hey Paul, I was just reading your article on using matches and was wondering what your preference, if any, on the type or brand of match. Cheers, mate. So, article on One Match Fire, YouTube here, show notes on my blog. And if you're listening to this on a podcast, go to my blog, paulkirtley.co.uk, episode 28 of Ask Paul Kirtley. All the show notes will be there. All the links that I've talked about will be there on that page and you can get all the info you need or want. Um, matches, I typically pick matches up in the country where I'm operating, Dave. So the, uh, the matches that you put on the screen there, the Redbird ones, um, Canadian matches, I use those in Canada um, because I buy them in Canada and I quite like those matches, they're safety matches. I believe, um, if I remember, no, they're Strike Anywhere, aren't they? Those, I'm getting confused with some of those. Yeah, they have a similar striker on them to um, the uh, safety matches that we get here. So they're good, they're Strike Anywhere, I like those. Um, you can put them into a tub. So when I'm canoeing in Canada, I'll typically buy a box of those. I take a little plastic tub, an empty plastic tub that has a, a, a rubber seal on it and I will put uh, as many in there as I can um, and put that and that goes into my PFD when I'm paddling so that I've got some matches on me as well as a ferro rod which is typically in my trouser pocket so I've got multiple means of lighting fire on me. I like those Redbird matches. In Sweden I tend to use Solstikan um, and they're good matches as well, good sturdy um, matchsticks on them and you might people are probably laughing and if anybody's wife is listening to this and I don't mean to be sexist I know a lot of guys listen to this and their wives are kind of have to suffer it as well in the car on on the way to the work or shopping or they're listening to it in the house or uh, if Mick Mercer's listening Mick listens to these in the bath and has them has it on in the house and his wife hears it as well um, so I had, to, I had to suffer that image when Mick told me. Everybody else can have that um, image as well. Um, wherever you listen to it, it's often guys, um, not exclusively, 
but I know there are other members of the family, kids and wives and some husbands as well who listen as, as well but aren't so into the, what I'm talking about who will probably be laughing now as nerding on about different types of matches but some matches I remember buying some matches in Spain and they had such flimsy little they were like cardboard not the cardboard packet matches like the little wallets they were little round almost plasticky cardboard um, matchsticks and they were awful they didn't burn very long and um, they, you know they were really flimsy other matches are really good sturdy matchsticks and they burn longer they're less likely to break they give you time to light what you want to be able to take the flame to the things that you want so Solstiken in Sweden I really like um, in the UK I don't particularly like Swan Vestas and if I have to use Swan Vestas I will try and use two matches at the same time although on our demos on courses we will use one but in a real real situation if I've got two Swan Vestas matches I'll probably use them together because um, they burn for that much longer they're quite short matches and I find that these days the quality of the matchsticks are not that good some of them are a bit thin some of them are a bit flimsy so two together is better um, the Bryant and May strike anywhere matches are good quality matchsticks the match heads though are uh, so the Brighton and May safe, safety matches, I think I maybe just said strike anywhere, um, safety matches, um, because they're not strike anywhere, you need to have a striker with them, but the matches themselves are good, and if I can use those, I, I generally will. I prefer them over the Swan Vestas, even though the Swan Vestas are strike anywhere. Sorry for the confusion there about strike anywhere and not strike anywhere. Um, and then I like the Red Wing, and, but you know, at the end of the day, is you can't easily fly with matches. You can take one pack of matches on your person on a plane, um, but for a trip, I tend to just get in country and buy some in country, particularly if we're a group. I will buy maybe a four or eight or six pack of match boxes and then I'll distribute the matches out into the group and we'll also generally have a few match uh, safes, match containers of some, of some description and put matches into those so that we've got them on our person in a waterproof fashion and maybe some in the group cooking kit as well so that there's plenty of those distributed around and we use the best that we can in the areas that we go and I've already said the ones that stand out to me so hopefully that helps and uh, that brings us to the end of the show good don't forget episode 29 which I will be recording on Monday the 9th of May is with special guest Ray Goodwin and we will be answering questions about canoe tripping expedition canoe skills all of those areas around canoe tripping and canoeing whether it's you know close to home or making expeditions whether it's paddling skills or whether it's um, about the expedition equipment or bushcraft skills and campcraft skills that go with that we will be answering questions we've already got quite a few um, but there's, I'm sure there's space for a few more so if you've got a question for Ray in particular or myself then please send them in to the usual methods I'm not going to repeat those you can find it on my blog how to send in the question and uh, make sure you do it the right way and then it'll get to me and uh, we will answer your questions the best we can that will be recorded early next week and it will be put out in the in the usual slot at the end of next week once i've had a chance to edit it um, because that will probably be a bit more complicated with sound i'm going to need probably need a couple of microphones and that sort of thing and that always just takes me a little bit longer to put together than me speaking to a camera like 
now. So I'm going to run home now and uh, I'll run back to my parents because I'm staying um, with my parents at the moment um, in the north um, and get my laptop out, edit this up, get it onto YouTube, get it onto my blog, get it onto the podcasting platforms. And as I say, if you haven't already seen the tree and plant walk on Snapchat, go over to Snapchat. Paul Kirtley is my username. Add me as a friend on there. Look on my story and you will see all of those things that I pointed out today, this afternoon on my virtual tree and plant walk. Well, it was real for me, but hopefully you've enjoyed it too, those of you that have watched it. And I will see you on the next episode of Ask Paul Kirtley before too long with Ray Goodwin next week. And then we'll be back to the usual format uh, after that. I will keep trying to get through the questions as quickly as I can. And thanks for all the questions to those who asked them today and those who asked similar questions. Hopefully that's answered and given you uh, food for thought. And I will speak to you soon. Take care, cheers.